Happy Jazz Festival. Yeah, right. Uh, welcome to uh, uh, today's jazz conversation. My name is Tom D'Antoni. I'm editor-in-chief of Oregon Music News. Once again, thank you very much. Very, uh, very happy to be an uh, online media sponsor for the Jazz Festival again this year. And for the fourth year in a row, we are podcasting all of the jazz conversations. And, and if you missed any of them over the past few years, and probably you did, uh, they're all there. They're all sitting there. All the great co- jazz conversations with, with uh, Randy Weston and Barry Harris and Jack DeJunette, it's just They're all there. And they'll all be there. This one, the Today, uh, we'll be up, I don't know, about a half hour to uh, 40 minutes after we're done. So, having said that, I would like to introduce these gentlemen who you probably know because that's why you're here. They are the, probably the closest thing that America has to Noel Coward. <laughs> Thanks. And I am very, very, very pleased to say, I'm very pleased to sit here on the stage with two guys who are older than me. <laughs> it's so unusual. <laughs> Easily. Um, <clears throat> I'm just a kid. Bob DeRoe, Dave Frischberg. Thanks. Now, in a perfect world, this jazz conversation, I would just say something, and you guys would just talk to each other. Because <laughs> they're not here, to, they're not here to, to hear me. They're here to hear you guys. But um, we, we did a little video uh, interview with Dave a couple of weeks ago. Oh, and we're, <laughs> we're not going to hear it, but... In, in that interview, he said that you actually sought out Bob. Why did you? Was it because he was, he was Sugar Ray Robinson's accompanist? Well, I never <laughs> knew that until after I'd met him. But I, I had I'd been in the Air Force in, Los, in uh, San, uh, Salt Lake City, and I found this album of Bob Doro. I'd never heard of this guy. We're talking about 1950-something. And uh, I, I heard it, they were playing it on the... the, the uh, turntable in the record store I said who's that and they showed me this picture of the, 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 the that uh, first LP you made me you and my target huh? yeah what was the name of the, of the label uh, Bethlehem Bethlehem right so that's how I met Bob Doro was through that record I took it home and I listened to it and I said I, and I really said to myself I've got to meet him I've got to meet this guy <laughs> I, really, I remember saying that to myself he was just so interesting and it was so good and then I was knocked out by its excellence. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> so what did you do? What? What did you do in order to find him? Oh, I had time to spend in the Air Force, and after it was... <laughs> and, then, and when I got to New York, I knew he was there, and I had some people in New York that I knew, and that knew Bob, and they told me how to get a hold of him. So did you know this man was stalking you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't. I had no idea, and... Uh... I'd never heard of Dave Frischberg, <laughs> but uh, to straighten out his story, it was our mutual friend, Bob Newman. Now, Bob Newman was a great tenor man, tenor sax, and he came from Philadelphia, and he used to jam with me in New York City way back in 1950, 51, and 52, <clears throat> and I actually worked for Bob in later years when he was a band leader, but... He was on Woody Herman's band, and they came to Salt Lake City, and, and somehow he ran into Dave, and he said to Dave, Is there any place we can blow, man? I want a jam. And that was right. Bob Newman. He always went for the jam session. That's right. He never went for the uh, Reuben sandwich or the breakfast or anything. He wanted to jam. So I think Dave fixed him up, took him around town, and I think, as the story goes, one day Dave said, have you ever seen this guy? You know who that is? He's great. 
And Bob Newman said, oh, that's my best friend. And, and Dave said, I'm going to move to New York after I get out of the Air Force. And, and Bob said, well, here, here's his number. Give him a call. That's right. Right? That's exactly how it happened. And when I called, I never got a hold of you for months. You were gone all I the time. I had a gig, man. Right. <laughs> I finally got a, we finally got a hold of you, though. That was, that's how I met him. Now, did you see him perform before you actually met him? Never, never right. even. I never saw anything. The only thing I ever knew about him was how he looked on that album. In the meantime, Dave Frischberg was making a big splash in New York playing piano with Zoot and Al, Zoot, Sims, and Al Cohen uh, at a great club no longer with us, the Half Note down on the Lower East, uh, West Side. Anyway, uh, I used to frequent that bar where you could spend a few dollars and hear some great jazz. And, and I think I went to the half note and, and met Dave just, you know, casually, like musicians are always meeting each other. And uh, then he said, I've been stalking you. <laughs> <laughs> Our words to that effect. Well, we got together in those years, and we went to my, we, my, we settled on my apartment, and the two of us sat down to write songs together. And uh, we accomplished absolutely nothing. <laughs> Remember? Well, it might have been the wine. I don't know. <coughs> That's right. And we didn't Wh get anything. Why? Well, then we finally said, well, look, we, we can't work together. And, you know, we were both so <laughs> self-conscious. I would play something. I said, oh, no, no, that's no good. <laughs> and he'd say, he'd start to play oh, No, that's terrible, you know. So I, we, I remember. Decided, I, 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 I decided he didn't need me. <laughs> well, we didn't need each other, but we decided... We had a lot of fun because, actually, we would play our songs for each other. That's right. And That's I played right. him one we're going to do tomorrow afternoon called Webster's Definition of Love, and he thought it was great. Then he played me one he had just written for the Femme Fatale called Peel Me a Grape. Oh, that's and right. I thought that was fabulous. <laughs> and then he played me Dan Lingle Mungo, his baseball song made up of baseball players' names. No verbs, no action, just baseball players, some of whom I didn't even know. All but of I, them. We were impressed with each other's work, and yes. that was a lot of fun. Yeah. But we couldn't work together on, uh, at the same keyboard. So I remember what I was, we suggested to each other, I said, I'll, I'll write a lyric, and I'll give it to you, and you set it to music. And that's what you did. And the lyric I wrote was, I'm hip. And, and I gave it to Bob, and it was the smartest thing I ever did, because only Bob Doral could have matched the mood of my, of my lyric with, with the outlandish bebop song that he wrote to, to accommodate my lyric. It was a We're going to do that tomorrow, too. Yes, we are. Hip. You know, it's funny. It's funny. It is still very hip to make fun of hipsters. To make fun of Yes, to make fun of hipsters. We actually, Today's thought, hipsters. we actually thought it would only last a season. You know? but, uh, That's what Portlandia thought also. <laughs> all the singers still want to sing I'm Hip. So that's, These sheets are know. available, by the way. <laughs> so we, we started, we, that's the way we started together. Uh -huh. And we did have a few songs together, but most of the time we just remained friends, although we were responsible for our own songs. But you know, we actually had a lot of uh, support in those. We were trying to write... Pop music, I guess. We wanted to be a hit. Huh? I guess. And who, what was his name? John Court. John he Court, actually, of course. He was sort of re related to the, the gang that ran Bob Dylan and uh, Peter Paul and Mary and the Folkies. And uh, Bob Court 
John Court. John Court gave us uh, studio time, and we'd go in and record these <laughs> ridiculous songs. <laughs> what, what, what was so ridiculous about them? Well, I don't know. Uh, nobody wanted to hear them again. <laughs> <laughs> we sure weren't writing for the market, were we? <laughs> you recorded with Dave Van Ronk. Uh, well, Dave Van Ronk, yeah. Well, he lived in the same apartment building that I did. <laughs> And I think that's why he called me, because he heard me practicing. My wife is here. (laughs) We were just talking about Dave Van Ronk, because uh, he's the uh, character that they based this movie on. Inside Lewin Davis. That's it. Inside Lewin Davis. The character has nothing to do with Dave Van Ronk. (laughs) No. No. It's nothing like Dave. No. No. I ran into Dave a few times out on the gigs. But you lived in the same building with Yeah, yeah. I got to know him. I knew his wife better than he did, because he was gone. (laughs) Well, we were all we were all in the same building. We'd see each other at the post, at the mailboxes and everything. And I didn't know who Dave Van Ronk was, you know, but I do remember coming home late at night from the half note at like two, three in the morning, and yelling down the air shaft from my kitchen. That's crap you're playing down there, you know. That's you know. <laughs> that's horrible, you know. Probably had a few beers. Oh God. <laughs> Well, at three in the morning, they're still singing about the midnight special, you know. <laughs> but I, I, why is it, do you think, you guys couldn't work together? Couldn't Could, write together? Why is it, do you think, you, couldn't, you guys couldn't Well, that's simple, together? because it's really hard to try to compose in front of somebody. And, and, really? Uh, because most of composing is what you throw out. And you know, those, those are private moments. I didn't want to share my, my <laughs> meager skills as a songwriter with someone else. And he was... <laughs> Probably feeling the same way, you know. We, we, it's yeah, uh, you know, writing is kind of a solo act, I guess. But uh, like I said before, Dave didn't need me. And, <laughs> yeah, I don't need you. <laughs> so finally, after knowing each other all these all these years, you got together to do who's on first. Uh, well, that came much later. Much yeah. later, but how, how did that happen? Well, we had we had known each other for forty years, yeah, or something like that. Yeah. Fifty years, maybe. Well, we we worked with Blossom. We we at one time we had a great show with Blossom Deary, Dave Frischberg, and me. And uh, it was called what was it called? Arthur, Arthur, Arthur. That's right. <laughs> it was our it was our original songs, the three of Blossom us. Blossom wrote a little bit herself, right? Yep. Of course, she knew every song in the book. She was a uh, wonderful musician, very good musician. Great. We miss Blossom. But uh, we work together in different duos. And, you know, sometimes me with Blossom, sometimes Dave with Blossom, sometimes me and Dave. And we sort of, uh, I remember we were in Seattle together at the Jazz Alley, and uh, we started sort of figuring out how we could do duets. And that was before we had the two pianos, right? Mm -hmm. We only did it on one piano, which is hard to do. (laughs) But uh, we made the Blue Note recording that uh, used two pianos at the Jazz Bakery in Los Angeles. Oh, that was years later. That's why we're here, I think. Yeah. Okay, so in the song, you flip a coin and you win. Dave wins. And you go first. Well, how did you decide who won? Did you actually flip a coin? (laughs) I don't think that was part of the issue at all. I don't remember ever thinking about that. I never thought either of us won. Well, of course, it was a joke. We, were, we had already decided that he would do his segment first. Uh-huh. And, uh, but, you know, we had 
You had the baseball bat where you do that. You know? <laughs> That's right. I just had this. I had this, this this image of you guys arm wrestling. You know? <laughs> no, we had that. We had we had a baseball bat. That's right. I remember. That was good. Really, you really did. Yeah. That's how you did it. That's how you, that's how you figured it out. That's great. Yeah, well, you know, he's the baseball king. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's right. We used to do that before we started, but of course, the outcome had already been decided. Yes. Yes. <laughs> then we we'd forget to bring the bat. <laughs> that's right. So I think we finally just said. He said, I'm on first. And I'd say, it's a rigged game. <laughs> I didn't care. I went out for another beer. <laughs> so how has it been since you've been in town and you've been rehearsing? Have you, have you, in fact, been rehearsing? Well, we do have to touch up our act a little bit. Yeah. And I flew in from Newark Airport Thursday night. And so we worked out a little on the Friday and today. Dave has an electric piano at his home. Plus, besides, plus a regular piano. Besides right? his grand. So I got the electric. <laughs> Did you have to do the baseball bat to, to, to decide who got the, who got the, the electric? No, he just <laughs> sat down at his piano and I got the electric. <laughs> I tried to take the electric this morning. I thought I'd give him a break. But after one song, I couldn't stand it. And I just, <laughs> I sneaked back to the piano. Did you notice? Then when he gets a phone call, I sneak over and play the, uh, the grand That's a right. little bit. Tomorrow we'll have two seven-footers. There you go. There you go. Nose to nose. <laughs> so how did it go? When you, what, what, what did you what did you what did you start off with when you when you came when you, when you came into rehearsal? Oh, at the rehearsal? Yeah. Let's see. We started off with a fabulous song that's not on the CD, uh-huh. and it's the one that uh, Johnny Mercer wrote for Blossom Deary. Mm-hmm. It's called "My New Celebrity Is You." Well, we've had it uh, around and around and up and down with my new celebrity is you. And Dave has written a number of original verses to go with it. And I've got a couple in there, too, to make it more personal. But, uh, of course, we, we both love Johnny Mercer and his work. Uh, that's another story, you know, that we could touch upon. Once upon a time, Blossom Deary, and she knew everybody. And, and she says, I'm going to get you guys... Uh, an appointment with Johnny Mercer. He'll be in town next week, and he'll be at the plaza. So sure enough, on a certain given day, we were, he and I went to the plaza, and Johnny Mercer had a little room, uh, like a ballroom or something, with a spinet piano, and, and we both had audience with Johnny. I don't know if you remember much about that day. I don't, but I know that it happened. But I don't, I don't remember much about it. But uh, I actually knew his daughter before I ever met him oh. because she married a wonderful piano player who played at, at uh, Eddie Bob, Condon's club. Bob Corwin? He, she married Bob Corwin. 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 Yeah. Yeah. I didn't, I and didn't I knew him. Bob Corwin and I knew his, his bride and that was the daughter of, of who? Johnny Mercer. Johnny Such Mercer. A great yeah. lyricist. That's right. <laughs> Did you do much hanging out with Johnny Mercer? Well, we, uh, we had audience with, he had coffee service mm-hmm. and, and the little piano. He made us each play. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, he gave us sort of pointers in a friendly way. What, 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 what kind of pointers? That's the trouble I forgot. Oh, geez. <laughs> he asked me one night, I was working at Eddie Condon's club, and he asked me if I would take him to hear some real good music, good songs by good singers. And I was so, oh, wow, I was excited. Johnny Mercer wanted me 
to go out with him after the gig and you know go to this late club. I said, I know just the place, and I took him over to this place on the east side. And uh, the, the piano player says, Oh, you got Johnny Mercer with you? I said, Yeah. He says, I'm going to play some of his stuff. I said, Perfect. So the guy, I can't remember who it was, but the guy started playing the piano. He says, Here's the great Johnny Mercer is in the audience tonight, and we're so glad to have him here. And here's something I bet he hasn't even heard in years. And he gave, he gave the introduction. He started singing. And Mercer, who by this time had, had about four drinks, <laughs> said, What? That's not my song. That's really, they didn't write that for Christ's sake. <laughs> <laughs> and then he got up and he put his coat on and he walked out. <laughs> and he left me there with the, with the bill. <laughs> he walked out completely. I think I, I, think I re- actually... Uh, shaped some of my singing style on Johnny Mercer. Not only was he a great lyricist, but he could sing damn well. What, what did you I take lost from my him? sugar in Salt Lake City. Oh, why did I go there? I should have stayed down in New Orleans and never, never, never gone nowhere. A cat with sweet talk from Kansas City. His words were sweet like wine. He bought her champagne and caviar. And stole that little gal of mine. That's deep. Salt Lake City Blues. Is that it? Salt Lake City Blues. That's right. You should have the Salt Lake City Blues. I did. I had them. <laughs> what, what gave you the Salt Lake City Blues? I was in the Air Force. Oh. <laughs> I was in the Army, and uh, I was in what we call the... The worst part of Texas. <laughs> that was a gesture there. So I had the Texas blues, I guess. Well, now what? Well, I'm getting there. That's getting all there. we know. I'm getting there. And I didn't know if you were done or not. Um, are your writing styles different? I mean, do you, when you approach a song? I think so. I'm not sure. I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Well, let's, let's see, how, how do you, when, when, you know, David Friesen, the great bass player, told me one time that he, he feels that there's a song waiting for him at the piano. Hmm. You know. how, how do you guys approach, approach songwriting? I mean, that'd be interesting to hear the, the, the contrast. I, 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 I really like to get a good title yeah? and, and then, and then uh, work to, make, to fulfill that title and make it, uh, and make, it hap- make it come to life. But the title of the song, to me, is crucial. And... Uh, that's how I constructed my songs around a title, usually. Before the music, before before just the idea was the yeah. title. The title of, uh, appealed to me, and I made the song tailored to uh, to make that to fulfill that title. You know, I've tried all the approaches, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, sometimes I get a lyrical idea, which could include the title or not, and uh, I just work on that a while, and then it sort of begins to take its shape melodically speaking just because of the rhythm of the words you know Uh so you might get the melody from that on the other hand sometimes I get the idea for a melody and then I try to lyricize it now I've had the great fortune of writing quite a few songs with another great master of the lyrics Miss Fran Landisman so the way we always worked is she's she writes in, the, in bed every morning. That's right. And so she would send me a lyric 
in the mail. Remember the mail? I, <laughs> I put it on the piano, and then my fingers just sort of find it, the melody from her lyric. That's very easy for me to go that way. Mm -hmm. But when I write all by myself, then I have a lot of trouble with lyrics. Really? Yeah. What kind of trouble? Looking for something that makes sense and tells a story and uh, is good. <laughs> I don't know. It's, you know, your taste. Mm -hmm. you, you never can quite put your finger on it, but that's the way I get started usually. Well, no wonder you couldn't write together. Yeah, no wonder. <laughs> <laughs> a, a totally different approach. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you get the title, and then the lyric comes, or then the music comes, or how does that work with you? Also, you've collaborated with, especially with composers, right? I guess so, yeah. Like I have done, I have done, yeah. I always prefer to just control it, the, whole, the whole making of the song by myself. I just felt more comfortable that yeah. way, yeah. yeah. It was hard for me to... Well, it's hard for anybody to, to, to cooperate on such a, a thing. Yeah. You know, it really is difficult to be part of a team like that. And it's, I'm but not when sure. You, when you take an Allen Broadbent melody, for instance, you know, you're, there you're stuck. You got to do well, he's, that. You can't change the melody. Well, he, <laughs> well that's, that's right. But other songwriters, but other writers, I said, that I did work with said, yeah, go ahead. You can add another quarter note there. It does, it's a quarter note or something more if you want. It won't hurt the song. You, that's okay. So you, it's, it's different working with different people. When do you know it's finished? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> when do you know it's finished? When you're sick and tired of it. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it sounds odd, but it's really the hardest work I've ever done, I think, is to write songs. It's just, it never came easy. And I think I had a good knack for it. I had a good a taste for it and everything oh, like that. It. But it never, I don't think I've ever had a dizzy, a, a, a song that wasn't really hard. I, I imagine you feel the same way. Yes. Well, you know what they say, um, and it's the same for, for people who, who are a writer like me. The pleasure is in having written. Yes. yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, don't get there until you've done it. Huh? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Anybody have any questions? No, oh, that'd be good. Here we go. I'm curious how both of you got uh, sucked into composing tunes for Schoolhouse Rock. Okay, do so you want to know how, how they got, quote-unquote, sucked into composing tunes for Schoolhouse Rock? Well, I guess I was the uh, beginning of it. I wrote all the multiplication songs, and they were only supposed to be uh, you know, a phonograph record for kids. And uh, then the art director in this company that I worked for uh, started making doodles and storyboards, and they sold it as a television cartoon show. So I became the musical director. Now, as the musical director, I had a lot of power. You know, I could use my friends. <laughs> I could give them work. So I, I got... Grady Tate and Blossom Deary, they both sang on uh, Multiplication Rock. And then we got into a, a series called Grammar. And uh, I think uh, Dave was called in to write prepositions. Uh -huh. Prepositions are lonesome oh, words. A city without <laughs> verbs. I write, yeah. No, that's what I wrote. The prepositions are lonesome words was the yeah. name of the song. They didn't write. They didn't, no. They, there are several so of them they didn't actually, buy, yeah. He didn't get in until uh, we went to the third series, which was about 
America, government, social abilities and all that. And he wrote the fabulous, most popular song of the series, I think. I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only. <laughs> That's right. I'm just a bill sung by Jack Sheldon. Right. Yeah, I was imitating Jack Sheldon. Then. Right. <laughs> you sure weren't imitating David Frischberg. <laughs> Anybody we, else? We, we finally did, a, uh, I just wanted to add, we did one called Money Rock about finances for kids. And there, he practically took over. He wrote some fabulous songs like Walking on Wall Street and <laughs> 750 Once a Week. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember those songs? That's that amazing. How did that one go? About a kid who gets an allowance. I think Dave's first uh, presentation of the song, the kid got twenty-three fifty a week, and everybody <laughs> in the uh, in the team said, "No, no kid gets twenty-three fifty a week. Uh, can she change it?" To, and so he went to seven fifty once a week. <laughs> it's kind of a grim. Uh, uh, so the kid finds out that if he goes whole hog right away, he's going to spend the seven dollars by Wednesday, and he's going to have a dull weekend. But if he sort of plays it cool, he can wind up on the weekend with money in his pocket. That's about the mood that I was trying for, message. yeah. <laughs> right here? How was it working with Blossom Deary? She was out uh, there. She was out there. She was a caution. A caution. <laughs> we didn't work together. I mean, uh, I would, I would write and then bring it over to her, to her house. She was a neighbor of mine in, in uh, New York, and I brought it over there. And whenever I wrote something, I brought it over to uh, Blossom's house. That's how she. Otherwise, she never would have heard those things. Once I had a gig in Hollywood with Blossom, and I think it was at that guitar place. What was it? The guitar shop or something. Anyway, they presented concerts. Anyway, I got to Hollywood. I flew out, and we were, she and I were in the same hotel. And it was like her room was there, and mine was here, and there was an air shaft there. And she said, okay, Bob, tomorrow morning we'll start rehearsing at 7.30. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay. So it's at 7, I'm drinking coffee. And uh, finally, I knocked on her door, and I said, uh, well... It's 7.30, honey. What do you want? How do you want to do this? And she said, well, first I've got to do my scales. So she went back to her room where the piano was, and I went back to the coffee pot. And through the air shaft, I could hear, la, da, dee, da, 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 dee, 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 dee. And she did about 30 minutes of this very meticulous. She was a great pianist, and I guess that's the secret of her success. <laughs> she limbered up so slowly and carefully and really right on time. That was Blossom. So later on, we rehearsed the voice. <laughs> Blossom, uh, I played several times with her uh, in, in England, and uh, she in London, <clears throat> and uh, just the two pianos on the stage, you know, and she would, she was very, she was, a, here's the kind of person she was. If people were talking in the audience, she would stop singing. Yeah. Right, and and that's and be, she just stood yeah. there like this. No talk. Well, if that's what you want to do, <laughs> if that's what you're interested in, I'm not going to stand in your way. And then she just sit there. All right, everyone, ready now? 
<laughs> right? Or she'd say, give this table its check. They're leaving. <laughs> she was tougher than us. <laughs> Little petite woman. That's right. Yeah, she was a great character. Uh, right back there? Inspiration for my attorney, Bernie. I don't remember, but uh, it, w it wasn't written for any uh, for any purpose or anything. It was something I just wrote at home. There was no Bernie, actually, an actual Bernie that you were. Uh, no, okay. I don't. I didn't have an attorney named Bernie, but I thought that I just. Was, I guess I was uh, beguiled by the by the two words, Bernie yeah. and attorney. You know, yeah, it does rhyme. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's probably was my starting point. I don't remember, but that was probably it. Yeah. Right here? Blue Xmas. Yeah. Yeah, I wrote that all by myself. And uh, I had sort of made friends with Miles Davis. He kind of liked my singing, believe it or not. <laughs> Other critics say, takes getting used to. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, Miles called me one day and said, uh, Bob. I want you to write me a Christmas song. And I said, what? What do you mean, Miles? What, what? He said, Harold will tell you about it. And that was his attorney. So Harold Lovett got on the phone and said, well, you know, they want him to be in this composite Christmas album up at Columbia Records. And I guess he doesn't want to play Jingle Bells, so you write him a song. And then Miles came back on and said, and you're going to sing it with me, Bob. Well, I went right to work. I don't know. I was thinking about uh, Miles and his personality, and they call him the Prince of Darkness. So I thought this is not going to be uh, <laughs> Jingle Bells or uh, Sleigh Bells or any of that stuff. So I started out with uh, the idea that Blue Xmas. I used Xmas instead of Christmas just to sort of paint it in that dark mode. And I uh, got the first little melody. They came kind of together. Blue Christmas, that's the way you see it when you're feeling blue. Blue Xmas, when you're blue at Christmas time, you see right through all the shim, all the haste, all the waste, and plain old bad taste. <laughs> I could go on. <laughs> right here. The Keep Santa Here All Year song he's asking about. Keep Santa Here All Year. I still don't get it. A song from the Blue Xmas album called Keep Santa Here All Year. Keep Santa Here All Year. Maybe you didn't do that one. <laughs> no, I didn't do that. I didn't do that one. Oh, I, I, I wrote another Christmas song. Yeah. Do you have that? Do you have the book? I actually wrote a little book, you know, about that thick, uh, called Blue Xmas. That's mm -hmm. what he's referring to. Ah. And uh, in it, we uh, put a CD, and I, I did my third version of the vocal Blue Xmas with uh, Dave Liebman, the Dave Liebman group, who's one of my neighbors. I live near Delaware Water Gap, Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania.
and Dave Liebman is, he, he was on Miles's uh, avant-garde band, you know, after Miles went kind of electric. Uh, Dave Liebman is a fabulous improvising artist on the, usually on the soprano sax. But anyway, I got him to re-record Blue Xmas with me. Now, a few years earlier in the Poconos, we call it the Poconos where I live, we had a community Christmas album, and for that, each of us contributed one song also, and I did one called, Wouldn't it be wonderful if Christmas came and then stayed overnight and brought the morning light? We let it crash on the floor, and when we woke up in the morning, there'd be Christmas time. So it's entirely opposite of Blue Xmas. That's what you meant, right? Yeah. It's called, Wouldn't it be wonderful if Christmas came? Dave Liebman just recorded a beautiful album with Portland's John Stowell, guitar player. Beautiful, beautiful album. Yeah. He's fabulous. Anybody else? Well, gentlemen, Yeah. thank you for, for being part of this jazz conversation. We'll give you today. the rest of it tomorrow. The rest of it. Tomorrow afternoon, if you don't have your tickets, please get them. I'm sure you do. Um, this podcast will be up in about a half an hour, 40 minutes. Of course, if you're listening to the podcast... Time shifts, you know that, <laughs> when you're having fun? If you're here and listening to the podcast later, it's even weirder. But anyway, OregonMusicNews.com, all the podcasts, uh, the podcasts of all the jazz conversations, and tons and tons of coverage, beautiful photo galleries and, and stories. We had a beautiful story on Cecile McLaurin's Helvant uh, by one of, our, one of our writers. So thank you very much, gentlemen, mm. and uh, we'll see you tomorrow. And next jazz conversation coming up in just a few minutes will be Buster Williams and George Colligan. Oh, boy.